This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Barry Ritholtz. Welcome to the podcast. This week, I had an absolutely fascinating conversation with Dan Alpert. He is the founder of Westwood Capital and author of the book, The Age of Oversupply. Dan is really a fascinating guy. He's done a lot of really interesting things in his career, including putting together one of the very first structured financial commercial products. Most of the structured uh, commercial-backed mortgage uh, guaranteed papers, the CMOs that you've seen, were residential mortgages. Dan worked with first a group of distressed assets and then a group of commercial assets, and that was fairly early in the world of uh, structured products. He also put out one of the very first REITs that ever existed. He's an expert on everything from uh, structuring credit and debt to putting out um, new products, getting them through the, the process. Really a fascinating conversation about what's happened over the past couple of years and why this is not a temporary phenomenon, why it's structural in nature. Uh, we talk about central banks around the world and what they should and shouldn't have done, as well as discuss the lack of fiscal response, which is part of the ongoing um, fairly mediocre recovery that we've seen uh, since the financial crisis ended in 2009. Uh, I find Dan to be just a very informative and intelligent guy who can talk about a number of subjects quite articulately, and it was really a fascinating conversation. If you're listening to this part of the conversation, you're probably listening to the full podcast, and we went for a little over an hour. And um, before I forget, I have to start thanking some of the people who helped put this together. Dan was very generous with his time. My engineer is Charlie Vollmer, and the head of research who really did a deep dive on this is uh, Michael Batnick. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dan Alpert. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Dan Alpert. He is the founder of Westwood Capital. He is also an expert on structured finance and distressed companies. And he is the author of the book, the Age of Oversupply. Dan, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks so much for coming in. So you, we're going to get a little wonky today. We're going to go in the weeds at a certain point, but let's just start with your background. Tell us a little bit about how you found your way into distressed companies and structured finance. <laughs> well, I think investment banking as a whole, I had a fairly unusual uh, beginning um, during the early 1980s, I was in the real estate syndication business, which was very much tax-driven at the time. It was sort of taking candy from babies, uh, really couldn't help but make money. All of that changed very very suddenly in 1986, where uh, the U.S. government uh, tried to pull off the old trick of uh, pulling the tablecloth out without disturbing the dishes. And of whole, course, whole renovation to a lot of parts of the tax code and a lot of exactly. formerly... Um, let's call it tax-focused investment themes suddenly went Go away. Go on, right. And, uh, and that, of course, precipitated the SNL crisis uh, because of the loans that those uh, banks had made. And then ultimately, 
uh, created the real estate recession, which spread uh, like wildfire around the country, starting in Texas and moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, ultimately by 1991. Prices uh, fell pretty substantially. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a great training ground for the period of time that came uh, the last 10 years. So, right. Even uh, though they had told us that real estate had never fallen in price previously. Well, well, of course, that was residential real estate. This time around, the first time around was commercial. But uh, what what happened uh, after that is I was uh, very lucky enough to uh, be able to take over the real estate investment banking franchise at Oppenheimer and Company, mm-hmm. uh, and in that capacity was able to create some new products in in the middle of what was really a total real estate depression, not even a recession. Uh, so let's talk about some of sure. those products. One of the innovations that you created, and I don't want to misstate or overstate this, but essentially you took a pool of distressed assets. And was that the first securitized pool yeah, of, I mean, of we, we did, distressed commercial yeah, lending? We, we did the first rated uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities. Before that, the only mortgage-backed securities out there were pools of residential mortgages. Uh, nobody could quite get their head wrapped around the concept of, uh, of there being commercial mortgages that could actually be diversified enough to take a rating. Uh, and what we were able to do is convince at that time, uh, if my recollection is correct, Standard & Poor's and & Fitch, uh, to develop a methodology for rating pools of commercial mortgages. It was a little easy because in that very first trade, we were buying a large pool of, uh, of mortgages at a significant discount from Xerox Credit, I remember. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Xerox Credit had been told by the rating agencies they had to divest of all of their non-copier-related businesses because they were investing in uh, – they had loans in, in aviation and real estate and everything that you can imagine. And that led to uh, uh, their, their being forced, effectively, to fire sale some assets, which we bought, which were actually performing assets at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were able to securitize those uh, in the first pool. And then uh, that was different uh, uh, and, and, and very good because we were able to deal with a pool where we had multiple borrowers, which is not terribly characteristic of commercial real estate lending. So, so essentially, the first commercial securitized mortgage-backed paper, in other words, Hundreds, thousands of different loans in, in one product? No, no, no. I mean, you don't get the advantage of having hundreds and thousands in commercial real estate. You, you t- I mean, obviously, during the bubble, we had large, large pools. But you know, typically, in this particular case, I think there were like 60-some-odd loans. But it's um, still a big distribution. It's much There was a decent distribution to it. Uh, subsequently, we did a, 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 the, a year later, actually. This was 1991 and 92. Uh, a year later, we did uh, the first uh, single borrower pool, where basically all of the assets were assets of a single company. Uh, they were obviously put into bankruptcy remote structures. But at the end of the day, we were able to overcome this issue of, well, if you have a single company controlling all the assets, they can just throw the keys back. And again, these were done at fairly low loan-to-value ratios. When you look at what happened in the CMBS business during the 2000s, it, it is almost night and day compared to what we were doing in the early days. So collateralized mortgage-backed securities mm-hmm. then, especially. And then, of course, you, you saw this demand for yield develop as rates continued to fall from the uh, 1980s, obviously, we had a spike in the beginning of my career in 1982 where we had double-digit uh, treasury rates and certainly double-digit inflation. And then we saw rates gradually decline. And so by the time you got into the uh, early 90s, 93, uh, you, you saw an enormous clamoring for yield. People still had an inflation mentality. They still thought that inflation was going to Where was the 10-year re- in 93? 
Oh God! I, I, it spiked interestingly in if I, now this I'm really flying by the seat of my pants because I. <laughs> but it I wasn't one point seven percent. No, 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 no. <laughs> no there, it was it, it was in the uh, the the high single digits, low uh, double digits. But I do remember in '93, I think it was we had a spike, uh, and that caused a little bit of a bobble. Um, but anyway, we did we did a portfolio uh, in in connection with the next iteration of this business. Uh, we did the second uh, uh, REIT that came out. Uh, the first REIT was a company called uh, Kimco. It was done by Merrill, mm-hmm. and we did one called Cransco about uh, a few months later, and used structured debt as the leverage because again the the debt market was very much bollocked up still. Uh, and uh, we were able to do that through the capital markets, which was very, which was very creative at the time, pulling off a simultaneous issue of a CMBS offering and an equity offering. At the no same time, no one had time. done that before. Huh. So that's really fascinating. And since that time, there's been a tremendous growth of both collateralized mortgages and REITs. So you were there at at very early in the process. So in the last thirty seconds we have in this segment, um, what's more complex? Dealing with REITs or dealing with uh Far more complex to do what I did next, which is start an investment bank of your own and run it for the last 20 years. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Dan Alpert, founding partner of Westwood Capital, uh, building your own investment bank, which is something that we don't see happen all that much these days. Back in the 80s or so? Was it late 80s, early 90s? It was 1995. So, so, so mid-90s, so you built your own, uh, right. your own bank. Left Oppenheimer, and I will say that that the only way we could have possibly done what we did, and this is where you come face to face with technology. I mean, when I started working in 1980, we had typist pools, right? right? Uh, so, so as a practice, the girls in steno is right, that literally sort of that like Mad Men, you know? Yes, right. that's exactly um, what I was thinking. But the the uh, uh, you know by the time 95 rolled around, we we actually had the beginnings of uh, of email, not quite. I think I was still using an AOL dial-up account, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly we we had a computing environment in which we did not need the kind of back office that you would have needed uh, ten years before, and so we were able to uh, to start a company with relatively small amount of capital, uh, and and as a true old-style investment bank, uh, taking our Rolodex and matching it against people who need money, uh, and and that that has been our business for twenty years now. Of course, we've expanded considerably since. Uh, in uh, 1999, we we began to branch out into Asia. We opened an office in Tokyo in in 2000. Uh, we've now we're now covering all of Pacific Asia, and uh, thanks uh, to my good friends at Citibank for destroying their business, uh, we were able to um, we were able to uh, bring on board the entire Latin American structured finance team from uh, from Citibank, and uh, they've been a great addition to our firm and. And have uh, have been there ever since 2010. So, how do you go from a guy who's structuring product for either commercial real estate or or REITs to building a, a bank? Who who is the? There's always a mentor behind that sort of thing. Who, well, <laughs> who helped guide you through that process? I, I guess it's funny because it, it, it had nothing to do with what happened in '95, but back in '90 in '87. I was working for a guy in the in the real estate syndication industry before I left for Oppenheimer, and he took me aside one day and he said, "Dan, you're never going to be happy until you have your own shop." Turns around, turns out he was right. 
and uh, and yes, I had a great time. I learned a ton in uh, at Oppenheimer during the some really great years. We had terrific bankers. We had terrific people. Uh, but by '95, I was done and and uh, uh, had the opportunity. Had a little capital and had uh, a couple partners, mm-hmm. uh, and were able to to strike out. And uh, quite frankly, it, it it all comes from realizing from whence you get your business, right? If you are very capital dependent, if you're a trader, you don't have a choice. You need a large platform with capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're using your uh, uh, creative powers in terms of uh, being able to design solutions for people that haven't been used before, which quite frankly was what we did for the first 10 years of our business, uh, and have a decent Rolodex and decent contacts, um, then eventually you realize that you don't need the, uh, the overlay of the larger institution. So you could be a little more nimble, and it's really just a matter of putting the right peg in the right hole. And Plus, I don't know who ever taught me this uh, this phrase, but sometime way back when, somebody told me, "Keep it small, keep it all," and uh, and that became <laughs> uh, that became my guideline for uh, guide words. But for, you guys aren't really all that small. Well, anymore. you know, we've we've grown, uh, but but still, we we manage to do this on a platform that is reasonably sized. We don't keep a ton of capital in the business. Uh, because we don't need it, uh, and we we operate uh, um, as a practical matter in in you know about say forty percent of the world. So. so now let's talk a little bit about your expertise in in complex um, real estate structures and and other things. We just came out of a crisis where residential mortgages were the underlying problem, and structured residential mortgages. Mm-hmm. Uh, was really the the bullseye. Right. How did that happen, and how yeah. can we avoid having that happen again? It's interesting. So, again, by way of background, I'll go back into what happened recently. So, suddenly I find myself an author and economist uh, where I had taken my, my degree in, in in those subjects and, and stuck them in a drawer for most of my <laughs> Where'd my, you go? My Where'd you go I went to, to the University of Pennsylvania, and I graduated with a degree in public policy, which incorporated economics and business and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, but uh, when I when I uh, saw in March of uh, 2007 uh, what was going on to uh, defaults in the mortgage industry. That was already past the peak in both volume and price. We had already price begun peak rolling was July over. July of uh, 2006. Uh, but, you know, and you were, you were there at the time for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, there were few of us, if you recall, who were actually writing and speaking and 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 formulating? A yeah, literally, and we all knew each other. Right, you could count on right. practically uh, one hand. Right, I can't. I, every now and then, I'll pull up one of the old criticisms. How many subprime mortgages do you think this there are that it's right. going to actually impact? Right. Well, how big is a you know a malignant tumor relative to a man's body weight? It, Size isn't what does right. it. It's that leverage point of affecting everything. Yeah, it turned out it was pretty sizable to be <laughs> on, top, on top of that. Well, we were talking during the break. We were talking about structured finance. And yeah. if you put, you know, bad meat into a sausage maker, sure. what you get out the other side is bad sausage. How much bad debt was there? How much bad paper was there that subsequently got structured and restructured and re-restructured? Well, you know, so you you, you saw an industry that from uh, the beginning of the decade, 2000, uh, until its peak had grown from about five point some odd trillion dollars in outstanding mortgages to almost 11 in seven short years. So it was was an outstanding balloon of of credit. 
and then uh, you you also saw uh, housing five prices. trillion to eleven trillion, right. eleven and change. Right. Almost and, and if you look at total debt in the United States, it actually grew from about twenty six trillion to fifty two, doubled there as well. So you know it wasn't just housing; it was it was across the board. We were in this massive debt bubble. Um, but what what happened is you 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 had to ask yourself the question. And in fact, you were at a luncheon uh, that wow. I was at at the Harvard Club with uh, with Nuriel Rabini. Uh, I believe you were there. Uh, mm-hmm. My my recollection is is that you were um, where I first articulated this, which is you know at some point you have to follow the money, right? And uh, and I I had always believed. Uh, obviously, for the first six months, I was just stunned with what was going on. Uh, in in the markets and what was going on, I obviously could see the impending collapse. Made a few bucks making a couple of good trades, but but nothing on this on on the score of a Paulson or right. somebody like that. Not um, not Michael Burry money. Yeah, like right, exactly. Uh, but uh, but started to write, and that was really the change. Is that I I, I felt that I had something I wanted to say. Uh, this was an industry that I had been involved in uh, in creating at least one asset class, if not more, of. And uh, and I felt that um, the rating agencies in particular had dropped the ball, uh, that uh, the, the people on the buy side didn't know what they were buying, uh, and the people who were putting these, these packages together uh, were, were committing outright fraud. So, they didn't care what right, they were selling. Right, right. My guest today is Dan Alpert of Westwood Capital. He's the author of The Age of Oversupply. And let me pull out a quote from the book that I really liked. You said... The greatest challenge facing the global economy is the oversupply of labor, productive capacity, and capital relative to the demand for all three. Explain that. Well, this all goes back really to something that we all lived through, or most of us who aren't children, and that is that we saw the collapse of the socialist world, uh, the emergence of these very, very large countries with tons of people. into China. Soviet China, Union, India, all of Eastern Europe, and even you can count uh, Brazil. Vietnam and go down yeah. the whole list. So, so you're talking about three and a half billion people. If you put this in perspective, uh, the developed world, the so-called developed world, Japan, U.S., Canada, Western Europe, is 800 million people. Uh, so you have three and a half billion people who show up and they decide one day they want to eat our lunch and play by our rules. Uh, and, of course, part of that is that they're willing to work very cheaply. Obviously, they have far lower standards of living and far lower costs of living. So what this that did is a giant is it, global labor arbitrage. It's, it's a giant global labor glut. And the glut is one of these once in a history of mankind kind of things. I mean, whoever thought you would shut down the development of the world uh, for some, you know, 65% of the world's people behind the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain and say, and, say, and then one day suddenly lift those curtains and they all show back up. Our bad. Sorry. Yeah. Well, we're we're, we're going to come back out into the right. uh, so that economy. So that, that creates this massive instability. It created, in my argument, the bubble itself. Because we saw something we've never seen in the history of mankind, which is something economists call reverse capital flows, where we see money coming from poor countries to rich countries when the right. Chinese buy our bonds, when other uh, countries buy our bonds. Um, and, and we've never seen that in the history of the world before either. Um, and so what that creates is, a, is an environment where you have enormous amounts of capital trying to find their way into uh, into sovereign debt of uh, developed countries. Interest rates, of course, then decline because you have an overabundance of demand for for bonds. Um, You have an excess supply of labor relative to total demand because, as you know, the Chinese and the Indians, while they're producing, they're not 
consuming what they should be, at least what they should be in order to create equilibrium. Um, and uh, and then you have the the issue of, of uh, uh, way too much stuff being made. And we can see that now uh, as we saw uh, infrastructure and other investment being made in China and other countries has now outstripped rational demand for the pr- pr- product that they make. I mean, Go look at the steel industry, is, is for that, example. Are you talking like ghost cities? Or you well, domestically, yes, but I think and- what's even more important is looking at, at, at the, the production of manufactured products, and steel is probably the best example. You saw an environment in which people were building steel panels willy-nilly in anticipation of not only the infrastructure demand in China, but also uh, large demand growth globally, and of course that Demand growth was haha driven by a massive amount of debt that was being created. When you created, when you took when you took away the debt, you took away all that demand. Let's talk about oversupply in the United States. One of my favorite examples is the total square footage of shopping malls, which yeah. is massive. <laughs> and you go into just about any reasonable sized town in or city in America, and there are two malls. There's the new good mall, and then there's the old dilapidated mall, which is half empty. Yeah, well, that's, how, that's how do of course self-correcting by the fact that those old uh, uh, malls are now shutting down and becoming ghost uh, properties. Um, that 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 type of, of of overabundance you have to again go back to the beginning of, which is how was it fueled, right? How did you get those extra malls? And the answer is there was a there was a huge amount of capital that, that was chasing yield and. As yield drops, real estate becomes, at least on surface, an attractive investment because you can leverage it with cheaper and cheaper money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that's an entire fallacy. And, and one of the problems with the period through which we're living right now, not just in uh, the U.S., but globally, is the zero interest rate environment uh, that all large central banks are pursuing uh, in, in the developed countries is creating a price dislocation. We really don't know what the value of anything is. On a, on a going forward basis. I can't tell you that the house that you bought last week for half a million dollars is really worth half a million because you bought it with money that was so cheap relative to what normal would be. Mm-hmm. And of course, we really don't know what normal is going to be again. So shouldn't the market eventually correct that? Because I've been hearing similar arguments from a lot of people for a while. We have market prices, except the market prices are distorted by the Fed. Mm-hmm. Now we have the Fed ending QE, or at least in theory, ending QE. Oh, they ended QE, whether or not they can reverse zero interest rate policy is another Right, story. so we're 25 basis points. There are some people who think that by the time the year is over, we'll be closer to 1% Fed funds rate, which is still historically extraordinarily low. Is that theoretically possible? Can the Fed... A lot of people claim the Fed's boxed in. What's your perspective on the that? Fed, the Fed is boxing itself in. I don't believe they'll be able to raise rates other than a token 25 basis point uh, rise just to say, look, we've got control over the tiller. Uh, but as a practical matter, the uh, wave of, of price softness that's not just here in the United States but elsewhere uh, is is really telling the story for them. My guest today is Dan Alpert. He is the founder and managing partner of... Westwood Capital. He is also the author of The Age of Oversupply, and we've been talking about uh, 3.5 billion new on, on entrants into the labor pool, which is part of the reason why we haven't seen any increase in wages. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on around the world. We have three central banks, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of Japan, and they all seem to be don't, sort don't of- Don't leave the Bank of England out of this. They'll be uh, insulted. 
is the bank? How big a player these days not, is the Bank very. of England relative to the trilateral <laughs> right, commission? Right, no, I agree. But what's fascinating to me about those three banks is they all seem to be in a different phase. The U.S. done with QE and talking about raising rates. The Bank of Japan in the middle of their QE and relative to the size of their economy, actually bigger than the the U.S. QE. And now the European actually announcing, I think we're going to have to do something because this austerity thing has been working. So how do we find ourselves in this situation with bankers all out of phase with each other? Well, I, I, I don't see it really as being out of phase. Uh, they're, they're all basically pursuing the same policy, whether you go from zero interest rate policy to actual quantitative easing. It's, it's just two versions of the same, uh, same soup. The, uh, the, the upshot, though, is that what's been going on since the Great Recession is we have been literally seeing the hot potato of inadequate demand being passed back and forth among regions. And it's very interesting how that happens. It happens due to uh, policy. It happens due to uh, labor markets. Uh, it happens due to fiscal issues and government fiscal issues. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, we were looking at a period only a few years ago uh, where Europe was, uh, you know, before the European crisis, they were sitting there saying, "Oh, we're fine, we're we're great, right?" right? Uh, and and it was the U.S. that was that was uh, in trouble, uh, and then suddenly we find ourselves with a correcting of the realities or a reaching of the realities of what was really going on with Europe, which was this massive mercantilist policy out of Germany, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and and when we saw uh, the, the the problem erupt there, that was very similar in nature, just fractioned into 18 different countries with all each with their own little story but still pretty much the same overall one monetary story. policy 18 yeah fiscal it's crazy stories. yeah <laughs> but but the uh, uh so we saw them uh, uh suffer and and then of course as they began to suffer uh, the you know, japanese tried abenomics and abenomics gave them a little boost for a period of time ultimately failed um, and so did it, it fail, or did they introduce that big sales tax? Well, the sales tax was stupid. Just but, really, but, just yeah, arrested yeah. whatever growth they had going. Yeah. In, uh, but 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 as a practical matter, uh, you know, the effectiveness of uh, Abenomics was basically tanking the currency, right? And they did that more or less by jawboning. It's expectations-based tanking of the currency. Right. Yes, they. They, they did QE and they did all the things that would engender that. But as yeah, a practical the matter, fall, their, their, their interest rates were low already. Right? So, Very low. The low so, up until right, yesterday. Right. We're recording this on a Wednesday. Right. Up until yesterday, lowest rates in the world right. until Germany managed to bypass them. Right. So uh, so you, 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 you had uh, uh, Japan sitting there with, with, for the most part, a surplus for most of the period of time, current account and, uh, and trade surplus. Uh, be, simply because they were in a period of almost continuous deflation, <laughs> right? right. So uh, mild, mild deflation, not mm -hmm. not not severe deflation. Um, and you know what they experienced, and what was what was really putting them on the ropes is they saw their currency appreciate through the roof. Right. Uh, you had the yen go, you know, below eighty, and and that was uh, which is this is a couple of around. years ago. Yeah, a couple of years ago, and that was stymieing their their exports and. Uh, suddenly, their trade deficit was 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 vanished. A trade surplus was vanishing, uh, and uh, and it really has nothing to do to anything more than the fact that uh, what you have to ask yourself: Why did the currency of a country that was the most heavily indebted country in the world mm -hmm. and had was experiencing deflation, no nominal growth, right? Why was its currency appreciating? And quite frankly, the only answer is 
uh, you know, put it in simplistic terms, that a grain of rice just costs less yen in in, in yen terms, right? Mm-hmm. If the if the yen if you're if you're having consistent year over year deflation, and the price of the goods that are manufactured or produced in uh, Japan drop in yen terms, well, then they're worth more by definition in dollar terms. Right. right. All um, currencies <clears throat> are relative. Right. All currencies are relative. So, so they so so the currency appreciated, which you wouldn't sort of put in the same. It's a little counterintuitive, yeah, yeah. but when you look at it from the perspective of the grain of rice, the right. The, right. the energy expended to produce this grain of rice right. is more or less the same from year to year. Right. So if it's costing less, it means the measuring stick actually has to be getting a little bigger. Exactly. So, so you, we saw this happen, which is also something that economists would not have expected, um, and uh, and that created a, a, a huge amount of, of pain because you saw the, the trade uh, surplus evaporate, and then um, you already had no upward pressure on wages. In fact, wages had deflated along with with goods and services. The, the uh, way they tried to reverse that was to try to talk down the yen, and they did successfully uh, talk it down quite a bit. Uh, and so what, what you then had is uh, an environment in which uh, you would think that you could create inflation, right? Because they still have to import oil, oil would cost more, blah, blah, blah. But here's the magic to all of this. And this applies in the United States, it applies in Europe, it applies throughout the world in the age of oversupply. Unless you can move wages, right. you cannot create inflation. We're experiencing this right now in the United States. Europe has been experiencing it for years. Japan's been experiencing it for decades. And we're now seeing, if you start looking at what's going on in China, some very worrisome signs. I mean, their last inflation print, this is a country that's growing Depending on who you believe, five to seven percent a year. That's and we fairly saw them, conservative numbers. Yeah, five to seven. and we saw we saw an inflation print there of one point four percent year over year last month, or maybe one point five, if my memory is. So essentially, their wages aren't growing. The, the the well, prices certainly aren't growing. Wages have continued to grow, but at some point, people are going to shrug their shoulders and say, "Why do I need to pay any more for for labor because their costs are not the costs being incurred by the families are not rising." So you said something before. I want to come back around to because I find it really fascinating. You had said there the natural demand just didn't exist. And we've been talking about monetary policy, which is playing with uh, interest it's, rates. and It's uh, a supply side concept, monetary policy. What you're doing, uh, you know, monetary policy is uh, in this in this context have se- has several stages, right? Uh, one is uh, you, you try to make sure that you create solvency and liquidity in the banking system so your banks don't shut down. So they did that, right, by lowering rates and by, by pursuing QE. Then you try to make uh, it very, very attractive to borrow. But in order to want to borrow, you need a need for new capacity, a need for new uh, production and equipment, what have you. And if that doesn't work, you go to your third step, which is you make risk-free assets, bonds, and what have you, so ridiculously unattractive to people because the interest rates are so low that you force people into risk assets. That's the monetary side. That's supply-side monetarism. And then if that doesn't work, you yeah. count on the wealth effect. <laughs> Right. Which, to, which, to, by the to, way, to create increased asset prices and and make a few people with money actually well, able there, to spend. There's there's a lot of math behind the wealth effect that basically suggests that it's more correlation than causation. Yeah, that no, when when you look at when you look at all these things going up, 
people weren't spending because they felt wealthier. People were earning more money and therefore spending more. And therefore, I think a lot of, of the Fed research on this gets it exact back, exactly backwards. But let's go back to the demand side of the equation. Right. So we have a huge amount of Fed-driven monetary policy during- All and, central banks, not just Fed. Right. All central banks right. during the crisis, after the crisis- mm-hmm. But in the United States, and to some degree Europe, actually a greater degree Europe, the fiscal response is non-existent. Oh, uh, it's not just Europe and the United States. It's Europe, the UK, the United States, Japan. It's across the board. But China seems to be spending money uh, you know, left and right. Right, of course. High-speed well, they, rails and cities. And they're sitting on a $3.7 trillion foreign currency reserve. Why not? And Go why, spend why it. Not? No, their, their bigger problem is they, they've now exceeded the demand for the facilities that they're building. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're now building for the future, so to speak, and there's a limit to how much you can do of that. So you're old enough, uh, you're mo- more or less my age, that you could recall in Soviet Russia – they would have a factory where they'd get raw materials come in one a- end, and what would roll out the other end are jeeps and tanks. Right. And, mm-hmm. and then they would take those to another factory where they would take it apart <laughs> and send the components back to the first factory. Right. Uh, is China at a point where they're— Not, not, not quite, because their, their consumer economy, while it's not adequately consuming relative to production, their consumer economy is growing. Uh, and I don't see that as being a problem because obviously China is dumping off its very high quality products and the quality of their products in terms of where they are in the value added chain is going up every year. So mm-hmm. they're dumping those products abroad. Uh, and that's what's causing the problem, right? The, so that's part of the oversupply. That's part of the cheap oversupply. Chinese exactly. labor making high quality. But products. getting back to the fiscal issue, right? You have you have uh, uh, these com- the countries all pursuing. Uh, monetary policy, which, as I say, is a supply-side remedy, and not pursuing demand-side remedies, which would be fiscal spending. In fact, they've cut, if you're in Europe, cut dramatically back. And in the U.S., with our sequester, cut dramatically back. During the period immediately prior to Abe in Japan, the Japanese abandoned heavy fiscal spending because they started to worry about the same thing, their debt-to-GDP ratio. So they stopped spending, right? And in the U.K., you saw a, a, a conservative fiscal policy as well. This policy of austerity, whether it's within a region or globally, is a huge problem in the age of oversupply. What you're effectively doing is you're trying to solve a demand-side problem with supply-side remedies. And it's not And it's work. like throwing fire on uh, – throwing gas on a fire. It's, it's ridiculous. So – are you saying that after all this time, uh, John Maynard and Keynes turned out to be right, and we're ignoring lessons that were learned almost a century ago? I don't know how anyone could conclude otherwise. Thank you, Dan, for spending so much time with us today. I've been speaking with Dan Alpert of Westward Capital. Uh, Dan is the author of The Age of Oversupply. What's your Twitter handle, Dan? At Daniel Alpert. At Daniel Alpert. Uh, If you enjoy these conversations, you can listen to Dan and I continue chatting about everything from the Fed to Keynes to austerity. Uh, That's available on Bloomberg.com as well as on iTunes, where all of our prior conversations have been archived. You can follow my daily column on BloombergView.com and at Ritholtz.com, which is the big picture, or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the show. This is the podcast 
uh, portion of the show, which is a little more loose and freewheeling. And um, Dan and I have uh, taken our ties off and, and <laughs> basically loosened it loosened it up. Um, let's continue where we left off. We stopped on the broadcast portion about something that I think is really fascinating. And it never ceases to amaze me that people argue about this. But the problem that we've been suffering for for all this time is a lack of organic demand. We had a huge credit bubble. You know, when you have a regular bubble, what you're left with afterwards is cheap infrastructure. So think back to the 90s, all the dark fiber that was laid, mm -hmm. Metro Media Fiber and Global mm -hmm. Crossing. Sure. And so they all go belly up. And because you can buy that stuff for pennies on the dollar, you end up with YouTube and Facebook and Google Maps and Uber and all these bandwidth intensive applications right. that you couldn't have done in the 90s because there just weren't the pipes for it. And if you, even if you had the pipes, they were really expensive. Following at the end of a credit bubble, you're left with nothing but debt. That crimps demand. People are deleveraging. Even if they want to spend, they can't get credit. Isn't it obvious that we need some sort of temporary boost to demand and we're just not seeing it from the congressional side, from the fiscal side? Yeah, I, I think your, your point is well taken. We have a classic Irving Fisher style debt deflation, right? Where everybody's trying to pay down debt. People have seen their assets fall below the value of the debt that they've taken on. Uh, you have to remember that even today with the price recovery that we've seen in the U.S. housing market, we still have uh, 10 million homes that are not, uh, you know, that are, that are either underwater or just slightly above water. Uh, and those people are still stuck in those homes. Those homes can't trade. It's part of the reason, by the way, that home prices actually accelerated as fast as they did, simply because a lot of homes can't trade. Jonathan uh, Miller talks about the perversion of all these homes with either no equity or low equity or, right. or negative equity, and that perversely causes home prices to rise. Yeah, it's very strange because you've it? artificially crimped the supply right. of potential sellable homes. Um, but but that's a you know that's a unique uh, function of the U.S. Uh, residential real estate market. Something you don't see elsewhere because the structure isn't the same. But um, when you look at uh, uh, what's going on in on the demand side, you have to conclude that we've done pretty much everything possible to avoid addressing that problem because. If you think it's just a debt deflation and what we've been through is a severe downturn on a cyclical basis, and, and I think a large portion of both pundits and uh, uh, Chicago-style economists uh, believe this. They really believe that what we've incurred is a, is a severe downtick in the business cycle. Uh, of course, in order to believe that, you have to believe there is such a thing as the business <laughs> cycle. I'm not so sure of that. Um, but, but regardless, uh, what we, we have other folks out there who start to understand that this is actually a much broader secular problem. It's not just a secular problem within the borders of the United States or any other it's region. It's global. It's a global secular problem, in my opinion, caused by the oversupply of labor, productive capacity, and capital. So uh, how capital. much of this is a function of demographics? You have you have an aging population <clears throat> in Japan right. with with no immigration or practically no immigration and, and a very low birth rate. Right. You look throughout most of Europe, really low birth rates. The United States is one of the best right. developed country birth rates, and even but our we're, birth we're rate shrinking. is relatively we're, slow. We're, we're, right. now, we're now falling. The, uh, you know, we're, we actually fell below replacement, which is a little bit disconcerting. Uh, and when you looked at where that replacement was coming from, it was coming from a very small group of recent immigrants, mostly, mostly Hispanic, 
and they have now sort of become higher income and, and more developed, and hence they're having fewer children. But the, the and that's uh, the nature of the <clears throat> demographic trend is right, and you don't get a lot. You, go, you don't get a lot of immigration when you have no jobs, so you right. know it, it creates another problem. There but, was a brief period in I want to say oh eight oh nine. Where the border problem disappeared because nobody was coming to the United right. States. Right, we had we actually had reverse for for I think uh, fifteen Two months. Years, yeah, we had reverse migration to Mexico, which is our biggest source of immigration. So you you have a big problem in that in that context. But when you point at the demographic argument, excuse me, <clears throat> the the it's very tempting because you have this incredible obvious correlation. Right, you see that the developed world, that even China is getting older. Mm -hmm. And it's very tempting to say that that's the cause of all the problems. You go one iteration away, you go one iteration away, and what you, what you find is that, look at, for example, US labor force participation. There has been some obvious demographic decline that's been going on since well before the Great Recession. Late it's been 90s, going on it since, peaked. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it really was the early 2000s when you look at the stats. But, but yeah, it was, that, it was that period of time. And you saw the labor force participation rate start to decline slightly. But it fell off a cliff after the Great Recession. This is not the same factor. The, this slope and that slope, I'm using my hands, are not the same slope. There's been something else going of a far broader secular phenomenon. Add to that the fact that when you talk about aging populations and don't talk in the same sentence or at least the following sentence about technology, technology, of course, has always been regarded as a sort of enemy of labor, at least in terms of its initial introduction, right? And then eventually we have people freed to do other things, sometimes more creative things, and our societies become better, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know anyone that can look at the demographic phenomenon that are going on in developed countries and ignore the fact that we just don't need as many people to do the same jobs that we did before. We have a technology issue. We and and believe me, that's not being that, that is don't more than that's more than offsetting the decline in working population, right. right? And so that creates oversupply of labor in and of itself. We have a global phenomenon. That's always been the case. I mean, there's nothing new about technology. We have uh, a debt deflation, right, where you have an inadequacy of demand because people are paying off debt. And then you have this global oversupply of labor uh, that has basically made it very unattractive for uh, people to employ individuals in developed countries. Let, let me – I mentioned this. It comes up every few weeks. Mm -hmm. So we, we're running a small office that mm -hmm. we – launched uh, less than 18 months ago, and everything we do has a very heavy software technology component, whether it's the financial planning side, whether it's the uh, software to rebalance. You know, years ago, if you wanted to rebalance a multi-factor portfolio, you had five guys in, in green eye, eye visors working a week to figure out, all right, here's what we need to do in order to capture some tax losses and, you know, we'll harvest some... Now you push a button, it's done. And so what we end up doing with seven people, whether it's producing content or managing portfolios or just communicating with clients and staying on top of stuff, 10 years ago would have taken 15 people to do and 25 years ago would have taken 40 people to do. Right. And it's amazing that you know every time we think about adding a body, the first question is, 
Well, isn't there a, a software I could get for right, two grand right. to do this instead no, of paying someone $80,000 a year? It, it's astonishing. I just look at the clerical headcount. Uh, You're talking you about the steno pool, the, yeah, ty- I mean, the girls I mean, in, in type- you know, typing you don't pools. Need, you, you, everybody does their own typing today, and 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 uh, telecommunications is, is not something you need staff for. I mean, you look at the decline in support staff uh, necessary to run even a large institution, and it's, it's, it's astronomical. It, it's There's no doubt about it. And then on top of everything else, there are all these companies that have become niche specialists where they use their software. So yeah. uh, you used to have a bookkeeper or an accountant on staff. We use a company to handle an outside company. They charge us like $100 a person a month <laughs> to basically do all of the uh, payroll, the tax, the state compliance, the uh, disability. There's a whole yeah. run of things yeah. that you run a business that you used to have a staff to do. That's gone. So bringing this away. all back into the macro context, right? So now you have these three phenomena. You have the continued uh, uh, development of, of technology. You have uh, the the debt deflation. And then you have this oversupply of labor globally. And these things are secular. Uh, the the uh, Not going away anytime there's soon. No, there's, no, there's no business cycle for technology. Yes, you have plateaus, but technology continues to progress, right? That's been uh, going on for thousands of years, right. so and it's only accelerating, that, right? Right. Um, with with uh, the the debt deflation is classically secular, right? It's not a it, you you can say it's cyclical because we had a bubble, right? But until we're able to remove that impediment, it's a secular impediment, and it, it's a decade or longer. It's not well. Be we a we two, have to actually three, get four. to the. I mean, we're, you realize that while people point to debt to GDP figures or debt to all sorts of debt to even debt to income. Um, because and certainly debt service uh, uh, costs have have decreased enormously, but nominally, from the point of the bubble to today, mm-hmm. total debt outstanding uh, in households in the United States has fallen by four percent. Not a not a whole lot. Yeah, and and so so you're 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 not talking about this enormous retrenchment where suddenly you've written off half the debt or something like that. And of course, you see the same problem in Europe. The problem in Europe is. Different from country to country, Spain has massive household debt. Greece has massive uh, government, government debt. It doesn't really matter how they took the money. Ultimately, they took the money generally to pay to their own people, whether it was lending it to them or pay- paying them wages for jobs that they shouldn't have paid for. But it, it doesn't really matter how they took the money. They ultimately took the money from mostly other European lenders who received that money, uh, uh, received that money by through the uh, enormous influx of demand for their government bonds. So let me bring this back to an earlier conversation we had about some criticism, and you've been a pretty vocal critic about the Federal Reserve and all the central. Now, banks. I'm not a critic of the Federal Reserve. In fact, thank God for the Federal Reserve. Well, that was the first. Or that was the question the I was going to de- ask. We'd be is, in the Great Depression. So what did the? So I was going to turn this on you. What did the Fed do right? Well, they stepped in early and hard. And what Bernanke did, obviously, as a student of the Depression, is he came in and he. He realized the the emergent nature of the situation, and he he did what was prescribed by uh, the the years of study and, and and research that he's done, which is to flood the markets with enormous amounts of liquidity, uh, and and bail out institutions. But of course, when you really go back and understand the role of a central bank, you have to reflect back onto its lender of last resort function, which is really why central banks were created to begin with. Uh, the whole notion of stopping bank runs, so banks have a bank to borrow from. Uh, and but and wasn't this, that supposed to be at um, 
Punitive rates to uh, institutions of, of good credit. Uh, market, actually market rates. Market right. rates. I'm thinking back uh, of against Bagahad. assets of good, right, Baja, Baja. Uh, my Badget, accent is sorry. going to be terrible right, to pronounce no, it, but that's um, not really what we did. We lent money at very low rates to companies yeah, we, that were essentially bankrupt. Yeah, no, we and, and against assets that were of questionable value. So, uh, if anything, it, it 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 did not follow Badgett's prescription, uh, and we ended up with uh, with a situation with a situation in which we created enormous. You talk about uh, moral hazard for, for homeowners sure. or whatever. I mean, moral hazard that we created for. Banking institutions will be with us now for for decades, generations, uh, and 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 we may, in order to reverse that, have to let a huge bank fail at some point. And letting Lehman go down by that wasn't sufficient. Well, that, it, that wasn't the it, warning that it could or should have been. It it, it was ironically counterproductive. So by letting Lehman go down, which of course they they felt they had to do. Uh, that created such an enormous financial crisis that their conclusion was, well, we can't lose anyone else. Uh, what they did instead of uh, uh, nationalizing, which is what, you know, when I was I was actually sitting a few feet from this very room in which we're talking on Charlie Rose back in 2009. And, uh, and you know, those were the days in which... Uh, uh, everybody, half the people out there, were talking about nationalizing the. Large I was banks. one of them. I thought that's um, the way to go. And 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 one of the benefits of nationalization, it, there are many many detriments, and I'm glad to a certain extent we didn't do some of that. But the notion of allowing managements to continue on uh, in management, right, after they've blown it so badly, is is really the worst of moral hazards that you can create. So the benefit of nationalization, I can't believe it's 2015, and we're still talking about right. it in abstract theoretical terms is that you wipe out the shareholders who had made ill-advised investments and deserve to be wiped out. The government provides debtor in possession financing. The, them and Warren Buffett are the only people who could <laughs> afford to, and even it was questionable if Warren could have bailed out everybody or provided financing. I actually wrote financing. a piece once called Warren Buffett Walks Into a Bar. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was about Warren Buffett not having any money in his wallet, so he decided he'd write an IOU on a napkin. Right. And I was trying to explain the notion of of, uh, of currency. And, uh, and who wouldn't fiat, take fiat that? currency? Anybody would take Warren Buffett's uh, napkin. On an uh, first of all, you would never even cash it in. You want that napkin? Well, you put that, that in a frame. Aside, the, the assuming it's not for seven figures. Good, right. right. That's exactly right. right. So so you you wipe out the shareholders. You give the bondholders, who then become the main creditors of the institution, a haircut. But you really hit the nail on the head. You also clear out that top level of management. They're all fired. And then the next level of people below them hopefully learn, oh, by the way, if you drive the bank into insolvency, you're going to get fired. You don't get your bonus. Your stock is worthless. Well, you also don't retain the bondholders as bondholders. You make them owners. They become like, equity uh, owners. You, yeah, you do, There's a classic. And in fact, what's going on right now in Europe, uh, you can look at, uh, at what Varoufakis is doing in Greece. He's trying to pull off a classic debt equity swap, right? He's got all this debt outstanding that he can't pay, and he's basically running around Europe right now telling uh, the, the finance ministers of Europe, look, here's what we'll do. Uh, if we come out of this and our GDP rises, we'll give you a piece of it, but we're not going to owe you this money anymore. Well, I, why doesn't he even take us a further step and say, you know what? We're out. We're done. We're defaulting. We're out of the euro. Yeah. We're on the drachma. And if the drachma plummets, great. We'll sell a lot of yogurt and have a lot of tourists right. come well, here. Well, unfortunately, they 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 can they have yogurt and, and tourists. They have olive oil, 
but they don't have a lot of hard exports and one of the problems with exiting for them i mean if if it were spain or italy you're talking about uh, easy italy it'd be easy uh, but Greece I don't know if it'd be easy, but it'd be easier. Easier for the for the exiting country. the The problem in uh, in Greece is you have a country that doesn't make very much. Uh, now, in theory, if they exited and they had a, a redenominated currency and uh, paid their taxes, yeah, they they would they would attract investment because people would want to uh, use their labor pool, which would be very cheap to, to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and and hopefully that would work itself out, but it would still be massively painful and. Within Greece itself, public opinion is not supportive of that. Uh, so it's very hard to get uh, a consensus for, for a Grexit, as they call it. The Grexit. So so back to the earlier conversation, uh, Lord Keynes wrote about this, and it was uh, pretty forceful and pretty persuasive and pretty clear. Um, but there is a subset of people who are just knee-jerk opponents of any philosophical spending by the government. They're philosophical opponents of, hey, there's a massive decrease in demand. On a temporary basis, let's have the government step in and we'll refurbish the roads and we'll shore up our defenses in our electrical grid and our mm-hmm. ports and in our chemical plants. There's plenty. At there's a time not a- of almost free money. Uh, so so <clears throat> right. right now, if uh, based on what's going on in the Bloomberg terminal right now, and since I don't have it up in front of me, uh, my guess is that the ten-year Treasury bill probably te- Treasury bond probably cost uh, closed at around one point eight, one point eight one. That's about right. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, that those rates, uh, you can pretty much go out and build whatever you want, and actually be in the money on the trade. And here's why: if I have a bridge, I know I'm going to have to rebuild twenty years from now. Right. I know that either by obsolescence. Uh, or by uh, increased volume that it needs to carry, or for whatever reason, I know I'm going to need to rebuild it or expand it. And I take that work and I present value it to today, and I do that work today, creating massive amounts of economic stimulus. And it costs me 1.8% to borrow. 1.75 as of the time we're oh, recording see, this. Oh, the market rallied at the it's end. It's even cheaper. It was, yeah, it's even cheaper. So it cost me uh, you know, that, that kind of an interest rate. It's a little higher for 20 years, but still very, very low. Uh, and uh, and you have uh, uh, that kind of borrowing cost in order to present value of the work. You know you're going to have to spend the money anyway. So you do it today. You create massive influx of both primary benefits in terms of paying workers' wages, uh, secondary benefits in terms of paying to procure uh, steel and what have you that you need, creates other jobs. And then, of course, tertiary benefits because all those people spend all that money or right. a lot of it. And you create a platform for goods and services to and move create, about the country. you create some upward pressure on wages and you cure the problem. Now, this is really a critical issue. Here we have, uh, in addition to all of the other problems that we have, we have an enormous amount of polarization of wealth and income. So we have uh, people who are sitting on enormous amounts of money who are putting that money in treasuries and municipal bonds, anywhere that they're not going to lose it, and sometimes in cash. Uh, and those people have no desire to reinvest because there's no demand for private sector goods uh, mm-hmm. that's not being satisfied by a cheaper source outside the country. Uh, and so you ask yourself, well, here we have the ability to round trip some of this money. After all, they're buying bonds. The Chinese are buying our bonds. Everybody else is buying our bonds, which is why interest rates are at the level that they're at. And all we're missing is the connecting piece 
which is what's known by, uh, which was what economists call the collective agent, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm depending on on Barry Ritholtz to make an investment decision, I pretty much know what Barry Ritholtz is going to invest in right now. I, I certainly know your point of view. Uh, and I know that you're not going to step in and build a giant plant that doesn't need to be built because you have cheaper sources of labor elsewhere. You're not stupid. Right. And, and so you're going to sit on your money. Uh, it is only us as a country, as a nation, collectively, that can decide to do otherwise, not by taking your money. You can keep your money. But we're very happy to take your – not take your money, use your money uh, where it's being parked in those treasury bills – and put it to productive use. And by the way, all of the people that buy our bonds outside of the United States who depend on U.S. demand to sell their goods and some of their services, those people would kiss us on the you-know-what in Macy's window. Be thrilled to If death, we actually this. use that kind of money for, uh, for, for infrastructure building, created additional jobs in the United States, which would ultimately create additional demand for, uh, for their building, uh, for their uh, goods and services. So in other words, it becomes a giant economic stimulus that accrues to the benefit of everybody, and I get to ride on roads that don't destroy the suspension system of my car. Well, that, that is actually a very interesting uh, uh, thing you mentioned because the, the, uh, that's the, the, the fourth benefit of infrastructure construction. You actually create greater efficiency in the economy. Not only greater Um, efficiency, but at one point in time, now I'm going to wax a little philosophical, (laughs) at one point in time, we actually had an infrastructure that wasn't embarrassing. No, that's true. When you have clients or or colleagues fly in from London and pass through JFK and say, hey, I I got off the jet and I was a little confused. I I thought I was in Zimbabwe. And the answer is, no, no, you are confused. Zimbabwe has a nice new airport. (laughs) So no, it's true. Uh, that sort of stuff is is to me is just where is the I understand the philosophical debate. I understand the drown the beast, drown the baby in the in the bathtub argument even though I don't you mean agree the baby with being it. government. The baby being government. I I don't yeah. agree with that argument, yeah. but I understand it. But what I don't understand is where is your pride of ownership? This is your country. You drive around. You Look, you and I both crisscross the country. I was just in Seattle. I got a trip coming up to San Francisco. I'm going to be in Miami. I'm going to be in – you probably – But, but here's, here's the it's thing, It's astonishing. If you, if you really think it through, what is driving that argument? What's driving that argument in the simplistic sense is that those people who are making it believe that they will one day have to pay that money back. And what I'm saying is that they're never going to be in a situation where they're going to let the bridge fall into the river. How do we know that's the case? How long did it – literally the Capitol Dome was collapsing and the Congress for five years refused to authorize repairs. One thing I know about about infrastructure is that if it starts costing businesses – too much money to ship their goods, and they're they gonna, can't get workers because the bridges are out. The answer is they're going to scream sure bloody hell. They, they're going to get the, the, the consensus. Will so change. we're going to do it late and expensive instead of early and cheap. Is yeah, that the, I mean, uh, and and in an environment in which uh, the cost of, of of recycling money, and I think that's the way you have to look at it. This uh, the sovereign debt rate is at the level it is because we are not recycling money. We've actually created a blockage in where money is supposed to flow. We've created this. This, this black hole of, of sovereign debt where people are parking their money 
that is not too different than holding bundles of cash. If you look at the cash in your wallet, Mm -hmm. you'll see it says Federal Reserve Note. Yes. But it's a special magical kind of Federal Reserve Note. It doesn't pay interest. Right? So zero interest bond. So so it's a zero interest bond. Well, if you're issuing uh, a short-term debt at 22 basis points, right. it's not much different than cash. And, and you and mentioned the longer 20-year, 30-year we're at. So if the 10-year was, was at, right. so the 30-year, according to my Bloomberg app, is at two spot three, four. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. That's, that's about as close to free money. Over long periods of time, you're going to get. And again, you pay you 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 look at it as a uh, at some point as a cash substitute. You might as well take the interest. It ain't much, but you might as well take it, knowing that the guy on the other end of that bond owns a printing press and is always going to be able to repay you. Right. Now, the we idea have all of the... these inflationistas out there saying, "But you're going to lose purchasing power." And How course, in an era, era and of, of course, deflation? We, we have the most incredible environment in the world where we have all these people running around shouting about the potential for inflation because we've flooded the world with cash. And, and in fact, inflation is dropping like a stone and the dollar is appreciating. So it's very, very hard for me to understand where the big disconnect is. And quite frankly, I do think it does rest in one place. Let's let's hear. Um, I'm I'm enthused no, it, to hear. It this. does. It, it it is a uh, it is a 30 year argument that we've been having. Actually, more like close to 40, uh, between people who really don't like government and people who really believe in something called the efficient market hypothesis. I'm with you. Keep and, going. And these people uh, during the, the the 1980s, the Reagan years. Uh, took control of of government and changed people. Actually, did things that I would argue in at least. Uh, and certainly I have friends uh, who, who believe this as well who were in the Reagan administration. In the first Reagan administration, cutting the tax on income above $188,000 a year from 70% to 50% was probably the right thing now, to do. That's a right? huge behavioral change yeah. in response to a, that's a giant tax cut. Right. So, 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 and that, but from they only cut it from 70 to, to 50. Right. right? They the, didn't cut it down to where we are today. And, and, and the second thing they did is that they did deregulate some of the guild industries, like financial services, what they did in the first term, Reagan, was 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 reasonable. What came after was 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 absurd. One of the things, you know, Bruce Bartlett is a great guy to listen to. Love you love talk, his stuff. He's got stuff. a new book coming yeah, out. He's, he, his he, new he, book, he by the it. way, has the working title. This is right up your alley. Mm-hmm. It's called "What the Right Gets Wrong." Yeah. Well, and, and again, it's very. But the reason, and this is what I'm coming back to, the reason the right gets it wrong is because of the underlying product that they were able to sell to the electorate. And it has nothing to do really with economic growth other than the fact that they have this theory, right, this, this curve, right, that they say is going to produce greater growth at, at, at lower tax rates. But it's lower tax rates themselves that they're able to sell, and they became very good at selling this product. And in fact, didn't need to understand anything about economics in order to stand in front of the American people or in the U.K. or in Kansas Germany or anywhere. Right. And tell people, we're going to cut your taxes. Which right? is popular. Who, who votes against, we're going to cut your taxes? No, no, I'd rather have you increase my taxes. At least a smart person will remain neutral. But everybody likes that message. And it's an easy way to get elected. And so you have this red state, blue state division uh, really fundamentally over that issue. It is the actual way in which small government theory 
or Jeffersonian, Jacksonian theory Mm -hmm. metastasizes into this complete shutdown of the political system in the United States. The immediate question, the immediate response to anybody who says, we're going to cut your taxes, the answer has to be, okay, so now I appreciate you're offering up an unfunded tax cut because taxes pay for spending. How are you going to pay for that? What spending are you going to cut to offset that? And by the way, this isn't a left-right argument. You could say the same argument to people who want to increase spending, which is if you're going to increase spending, what taxes are you going to raise to pay for it? And so anytime someone says, and Kansas and and Governor Brownback is now the, have become the poster child for this, all right, you slashed business taxes and you cut personal taxes, and now the theory says there's supposed to be an uptick in revenue, but it's years of this. And uh, by the way, he got reelected. Great book called "What's the Matter with Kansas," right? Well, that was long before he got into office. But here we are. And so the question is: If you're slashing taxes, hey, listen, I'm in a top tax bracket. I'm very happy to pay less taxes, but I want to know what I'm giving up if I'm paying less taxes. I could tell you right now. I know I've given up infrastructure. I know that the gas, this is my pet peeve, is the gas (laughs) tax is locked at levels it's been since 1993. We've had big inflation over the ensuing 15, 20 years before the deflationary period. And all these things built in the 50s and 60s and 70s are crumbling. I I was just in, in Belgium. They're apologizing about all the road work. Their roads before they're repaired, (laughs) are head and shoulders above ours. And everybody forgets in the 50s and 60s after the Eisenhower administration, the United States infrastructure was the envy of the world. And now we've fallen to the bottom of the developed world. And I don't, it's astonishing to me that this is even a debate. You want to drive on a highway, you got to pay for it. And if that means adjusting the gas tax from I think it's 19 cents now to the cost of living to inflation, even though there's low inflation, you still have to have some increase in spending to maintain these roads. Well, I mean, the, the, the irony, of course, is that you, again, talking about the blockage aspect that I was saying before, uh, you, you have this uh, huge amount of what I'll call stranded capital uh, that is sitting there not being employed for productive use. Uh, so not only uh, is this not just a question of, of tax versus spend, it's also a question of why shouldn't we be in a situation where we are deficit spending, borrowing money that costs almost nothing right? Uh, to do things we know we need to do eventually. You're going to have to do it one day. Yeah. Buying ourselves. You build a bridge, you get 100 years out of it, right? We have bridges. Uh, 50 are, years anyway, 75 uh, yeah, years a anyway. A long time. Uh, so, so we have bridges all over this country that are so old they're falling apart. Uh, require enormous amount of maintenance each year, which is an all, which is also a cost borne by government. Um, and by replacing them, we can get all of these great benefits and unblock this capital that's being stranded uh, in in sovereign obligations. It's 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 actually kind of collective lunacy. It is. So I I would love to keep you here for hours. Sure. Let me hit you on one last subject mm-hmm. related to the blockage, which is. Velocity of money. It's something that we don't hear about that often, but if we want to get a little wonky and get into the weeds, why have we seen money just not circulating? And I don't mean cash. I mean actual 
what we used to call M2 and M3. Why is the money supply just kind of sitting on the Fed's balance sheet and not coursing through um, our our economy? Well, the simple answer is there's no demand for money. Uh, There's no demand for money because there's no demand for new infrastructure. There's no well, the demand for new infrastructure. There's no no way of creating it. There's no demand for new plants. There's no demand for new equipment. Uh, if they're going to be built, they're likely to be built outside the United States, uh, where labor is cheaper. Um, so the demand for capital side is is really the sort of bigger answer. But then you look at what's gone on in the field of economics. You know, when Milton Friedman, uh, bless his heart, was creating monetary theory, or at least expounding upon monetary theory, in his heyday. Uh, all of his equations held the velocity of money constant, huh. and uh, and 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 what we've proven in this uh, great recession and thereafter is that the velocity of money is anything but constant. Again, it's the view of an economics of shortage versus an economics of oversupply. You have a condition going back as long as we can remember in in modern economic thought. That's probably about a hundred years, even you know before getting back to the people who are you know, sitting there uh, with, with agricultural economies. Um, but you, you look at sort of the post-industrial uh, revolution uh, view of, of, econo- of economics, it was always governed by something that, quite frankly, was inherited from the agricultural view, which is that most of economics is about shortage. There's always a shortage of supply relative to demand, and that's agrarian in its nature. And it's agrarian in its nature, right? So you 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 then then sort of uh, ramp forward into this completely different environment, which, by the way, I would argue probably would not have have happened, and is in fact in the broad scheme of things temporary, um, if you didn't have this massive uh, situational change in, uh, by, by having all of these post-socialist economies suddenly emerge. I mean, you, I like to, that's what really opened the floodgates and allowed 1989. Suddenly you had the Berlin wall and the Tiananmen incident. (laughs) You had massive industrial policy in, in China. You had, uh, uh, democracy flowing in and, and, and markets flowing into Eastern Europe. And, and this was, uh, this was a situation that we really cannot repair other than by looking to mechanisms that are not oriented towards this underlying premise of there always being shortage. We live in the age of oversupply. So I'm going to leave it at that note for for the anti-Keynesians and the tax coders. If they want to send you hate mail, what's the best way to get a hold of you, either on Twitter or <laughs> Twitter elsewhere? Twitter at, uh, at Daniel Alpert. And, of course, you can always go to uh, my blog on Economonitor. Uh, and uh, please called uh, two cents. Uh, Dan Alpert's two cents at Economonitor dot com. Uh, and uh, you know, I uh, the the uh, uh, I'm a fellow at the Century Foundation, and so I'm, I could be found there as well. So you're you're easy to track down to yeah. to send angry letters to. So I've been speaking to Dan Alpert of Westwood Capital, author of The Age of Oversupply. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in business on Bloomberg Radio.